Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, quality handcrafted guitar pickups made down in Detroit City. They're doing some great stuff down there. Check them out. PariahPickups.com. Joining me on the program today is the legendary Canadian classic rock and roller, Greg Godovitz. Greg's latest book is called Up Close and Uncomfortable, and he had a lot of great stories for me, going all the way back to Toronto's Yorkville scene. Check it out. Greg Godovitz, thanks for joining me today, man. I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm all right. You know, I'm just sitting out in the back of my what we call our office here, uh-huh. and I'm uh, feeding the squirrels. <laughs> ah, nice. How's the weather? Yes. There? Uh, it's, I don't I haven't been out. I mean, the squirrels look cold. <laughs> <laughs> They're shivering away out there, but, uh, you know, I've been... They're outside, you're inside. Yeah, and I got the big bag of nuts, and they get, you know, what they get, but uh, they become friends with us. Oh, that's cool. I just hope they're not in our roof eating our wiring up there. That could be. You never know. (laughs) You never know. So, Greg, thanks a lot again for joining. Anybody who knows anything about classic Canadian rock and roll knows that you are a pillar of that community. You've got 57 plus years in the industry. I think you've seen it all, haven't you? You know, if someone had told me back in 1964, you know, when I first picked up a bass guitar, that I would have had this life, I would have went, yeah, right. I mean, even the Beatles didn't think they'd last longer than a couple yeah. of years. <laughs> and uh, here it is, you know, 57 years later, and I'm still bloody doing it, you know. So somebody said to me, you, you know, you picked the right job. Mm. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, I picked the right life job, you know. I, I said, I'm, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And as it's turned out, it's the way it looks like it's going, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm a Gatto fan. And we'll talk about your, your new book, Up Close and Uncomfortable, in a second. But I think this leads into that. Before Gatto, you had played in a number of bands, The Pretty Ones, you, you were in Flood. You were mixed up in the Toronto-Yorkville scene for a little while. Yeah, well, The Pretty Ones was, uh, that came out of uh, grade nine in 1964. At that time, I was the only guy in the school that had a Beatle haircut. Okay. And and of course that caused a lot of problems because I remember you know getting punched in the face by a grade thirteen when I was twelve you know oh, wow. thirteen you know just for having the long hair but I met Brian Pilling in my homeroom mm-hmm. uh, he had his hair all quiffed back in the day it was a bit greasy but you know we hit it off instantly and then uh, they had a day called Twerk Day where the seniors could you know mess with the grade niners and Brian showed up with his hair combed down with the grease washed out and and the two of us went running across the field behind wa porter pretending we were the beatles in hard days night you know we (laughs) fell down and you know and he says you know my brother's coming back from england and let's get a group together so we started and then ed came back from uh, england i think he was i was 13 ed would have been 17 he showed up at the restaurant rendezvous uh, in scarborough and he was two hours late because the bus drivers wouldn't pick him up. Oh, because of his hair? Because he had longer blonde hair. He'd been living in England. He had that Brian Jones cut going on, and okay. uh, they wouldn't pick him up. Meanwhile, Brian and I had been sitting in this restaurant waiting for him, uh, and we never realized because we were so excited that they weren't serving us. Wow. I mean, it was really like that back then. It was crazy, you know. There were certain areas you couldn't go because people would wait and beat you up. And, I mean, uh, it was crazy. And and then uh, they went back to England the next year at 66. Mm -hmm. I was only 15, so I couldn't go. 
And then Brian and Ed went to England and joined up with Cat Stevens. Oh, wow. So that's when I went into my blues phase. Uh, I answered an ad in the Toronto Star singing a bass player wanted. Well, I happened to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I called the guy up and he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 16. Because I, I, I thought it made me sound older, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up joining a band with these guys, uh, John Bjarnason, who's still a friend of mine all these years later, Dave Wood, Wayne Wilson, which was called the Backdoor Blues Band. Okay. And these guys would eventually become Whiskey Howl, which was another great band, you know. Mm. And they taught me about Chicago blues. They said, you know, those songs that you like by the Rolling Stones, they didn't write them. So I, at 15, I got this incredible crash course in Muddy Waters and Junior Wells and John Lee Hooker and all the great writers, you know. Yeah. And then uh, we got into the Yorkville scene, playing down in the bars down in Yorkville. And then I joined a band. Some of the guys from that band, we ended up in a band called Sherman and Peabody. Yeah, with Gilmore from Triumph, right? Gil was in the band. Buzz Sherman was the singer in the band yeah. who would go on to be with Moxie. So, I mean, there was a pattern developing. I was always playing, even as a kid, with great musicians. Yeah. You know? I'm not going to say I was one, but, you know, I held my own and I was learning fast. Neil Young and Rick James, the Minor Birds, were playing. Was that around the same time in Yorkville? Oh, yeah. We, we used to see those guys all the time. I mean, when I, when I finally moved down to Yorkville, uh, you know, I was living in one of those old mansion houses on Admiral Road, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. 30 bucks a week for a room. Wow. And then pe- people stealing your food out of the fridge. You know, it was like a communal <laughs> communal thing. Yeah. It was great because, you know, we hang out in Yorkville, uh, on Yorkville Avenue every night. And, of course, you had all those great clubs, the El Patio, the Flick, the Minor Bird, mm-hmm. uh, Penny Farthing. Uh, the riverboat and the riverboat was the big one because you know we'd sit up front it was only like two or three dollars to get in but first part of the week it'd be Joni Mitchell and then the next part of the week the weekend would be Neil Young and then it would be Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Chris Christopherson the next week and then Junior Wells and Buddy Guy and I think I only ever got to go in there once to see Junior Wells Mm -hmm. because we just didn't have the money to do it back then and the place only held about 100 people but we, we always sat out front and even though we didn't know who Joni Mitchell was or Neil Young at the time, you could tell these were people that were going someplace. I mean, they just they just had that it, you know? Yeah. That must so, have been a tremendous thing to be a part of, man. Well, it was an incredible education, you know? I mean, the poppers were there. Skip Prokop played uh, drums in the poppers before Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And Skip was always really, really kind to me. You know, like we had questions to ask and he was like an adult and he was a couple of years older and stuff. And he was in a band that was really doing something. We were just, you know, starting out, mm-hmm. but he always took the time. And it taught me a, a valuable lesson myself is that the way he treated me was the way I was going to treat people that talked to me about once I achieved some sort of success. And I never forgot that, you know, that's great. Uh, is is the, the mentoring thing for people because you know I, I've met other people that I consider heroes and they they just basically fluffed you off and that sticks with you you know oh for sure you know it was great when you met the, the good guys and and they uh, they taught you things about the business you know yeah so a- after Sherman and Peabody I got into the psychedelic era okay and I was in a band called the Mushroom Castle mm-hmm. which still had some of those guys from those first two bands in there. And Eddie Schwartz was in the band. So for people that don't know, amongst all the great songs, probably his most famous is Hit Me With Your Best Shot, which he wrote for Pat Benatar. So that was the other thing. I was getting to also hang around with guys who were really 
coming into their own as songwriters. And then the Pillies came back from England and they, they put Flood together. Uh, I was sort of finished with the Yorkville scene for one reason or another. We were all splitting up and going our separate ways. Mm-hmm. And I went to see Flood at uh, Midland Collegiate in Scarborough. Okay. And they had a bass player. I said, Jesus, I would really like to join this band. And they unfortunately got rid of the guy that they had. I ran into him a couple of years ago in Calgary. He still wasn't pleased about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's another story. <laughs> but but th- then things started really developing because Brian and Ed had become great songwriters. And then we had a, a string of, you know, uh, Adam Mitchell from the Poppers came out to produce us. And we suddenly found ourselves in San Francisco at Pacific Recorders with uh, Adam and Fred Catero, who was like an absolute legendary recording engineer. He'd worked with Santana and Barbara Streisand and anybody that came out of the San Francisco scene. I think I, I found out recently that Moby Grape was recording at the same time as we were. Oh, we didn't know. I mean, you know, because I, I met Don Stevenson. He lives in Toronto now, the drummer. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I read a book that somebody had written about them. And I went, Jesus, we were in the same studio at the same time. Wow. Fred, I guess, was bouncing back and forth in between sessions. But you know what? Here I am. I'm, I don't know, 19 years old. We're on a jet to San Francisco. There's a limousine waiting for us. Huh. Guy from the record company gives us $100 cash US each. Go have a nice night, boys. You should get to work tomorrow. And then we spent two weeks in Sausalito recording the first Flood album. How cool is that? H- heady stuff, you know. And then the records, Turn 21, took off at radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we recorded in Toronto. and We did Get Up, Get Out, and Move On, and Brother and Me. Then we went to England. Uh, I'd seen an ad in the New Music Express for a new studio called The Manor in uh, Oxfordshire. Okay. And it was uh, Richard Branson's place. Oh. I showed it to the guys, and the next thing I know, we're recording at the manor like a month later we're over there we're the we're the first international band or you know band from outside of england to uh, to record there uh mike oldfield was there recording yeah. two bells, bells yeah. which i actually burned a little piece of the score one day by accident <laughs> <laughs> yeah not graham bond showed up from the graham bond organization uh mm. had jack jack bruce and ginger baker was in the organization That's and nice. i i would jam with him at nighttime playing guitar Jorn Anderson, the great drummer, John in those days, yeah. from Flood would play drums. I'd play guitar because I had that blues background. I know three chords, you know, three three licks. <laughs> and Simon, the engineer, would play bass. And then one night, Graham was like, he was sort of down on his luck. So he was basically there and living off what we were doing, you know, eating with us and stuff. Of course, I was I was in love with it because it was Graham Bond. I, I knew him well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one night, he listened to the early takes of the Flood album. And said, uh, who's the bass player in the band? And they said, well, Greg is. And he goes, what, him that plays the guitar with me at night? So he took me aside and said, look, it, I would like you to stay in England. I'd like to put a band together around you. Ah. And I demurred. You know, I said, no, I got to go back. You know, I'm young. I can't stay in England. I don't need money. And uh, about two months later, they found him uh, under a train. Oh, Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, they claim it was suicide, but they found half of them up facing up and the other half facing down. And apparently that's some sort of satanic kind of way to go. Oh, uh, and he, he he was really into that black magic stuff. So I'm sort of glad I didn't stay in England. Because <laughs> <laughs> I might have been with him. <laughs> oh, wow. 
I didn't know that. Jeez. But, you know, great stories, you know, and fortunately for me, even, you know, all the stuff I've been through, uh, you know, uh, trying to kill myself all of these years, I remember all of them, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And why not? Because they're, they're exciting. You know, they're good stories. Oh, absolutely. And that is a great segue into your new book, Up Close and Uncomfortable, right? All right. When I say that you've seen it all and done it all, I mean, this book really backs it up. I was reading, somebody called it a graphic depiction of the music scene as it was back then. Yeah, that and more. I mean, if you look at it, Travels with My Amp, the first book, it was nothing but music. Mm -hmm. When I got requests from people saying, when are you going to write part two? Because Travels went from 1964 to 1984. So it was really just the first 20 years of my career. Mm -hmm. So I started to write the next bit. And I just realized after like 150 pages, this is just more of the same, you know, and and it's boring me. So I shelved it. And then I started going through my computer and finding these short stories that I'd written for some reason years ago. And I decided to take a different tact. I had nothing about my real early life in the first book. But my early life, like working downtown when I was a child and stuff, was as crazy as my adult life. Mm. My father had a smoke shop at Young and Dundas. My older brothers would take coffees and danishes to the businesses around there. Yeah. And my mother was a co-check girl at the Friars Tavern. Oh, wow. Which became the Hard Rock, which is now a Shoppers Drug Mart. So sad. Yeah. So by the time I got interested in music uh, and my mom was working at the Friars, I would go every Saturday afternoon and I'd be sitting with Levon and the Hawks, you know, oh, wow. and they, they took an interest in me and. I remember it was Rick Dankel. I told him I wanted to be a drummer because this is just before I started to learn how to play. And he looked at me and says, you've got bass player hands. Oh. So the next thing he did, of course, was sell my mother uh, a trainer bass hand, <laughs> <laughs> which he got for free. And I wish I still had it because it was a hand-wired trainer bass master head and a 15-inch cabinet. Oh. And the serial number was 0003. Oh, wow. So, man, I, every time I go into a pawn shop, I have a look. I'm hoping it comes back to me, you know? Yeah, no kidding. And, and you know, the other people I met, Roddy Hawkins there. You know, 40 years later, I'm his band leader. Yeah. I meet David Clayton Thomas there. I was a kid, you know? These guys were all making records, and, and they were all really cool. That's so great to hear. It just sounds like such a great scene was happening. Well, it was insane, you know, because I was really interested in it. You know, I, yeah. I, and, and I knew it was going to be a baseball because, you know, even though you had Robbie Robertson and Lee Bunn and those guys playing, it was always the bass player and the sound of the bass that I went, yeah, you can hear it through everything. So that's what I want to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I love McCartney. Oh, yeah. Like like everybody of that age. So so I, ha- I had stories like that that I wanted to tell about that era. And also... Other things like I wrote a song, I wrote a story called "The Sinister Scoutmaster." Okay. This is when when I was eleven, and we we used to go on these week long or weekend jamborees, I think they called them. But this guy was a psychopath. Like he he would get us to sharpen spears, and and then just like the movie "The Naked Prey," mm-hmm. he would throw a spear as far as he could. And he says, "When you get to it, I'm after you. Don't let me catch you." Oh. Wow. <laughs> and he would come and hunt us down. You know, I mean, it was. But we had a pact amongst the pack saying, should we tell on this guy? No, he's way too much fun to go away with. You know? it, was like, <laughs> it was like Survivor for real. You know? So I, I added some stories like that in, and I haven't had one complaint of like, how come there's not more of this or that in the book? Yeah. I wanted the book to be, as I think I put in the forward to it, 
Kurt Vonnegut's my favorite author, and he mm-hmm. wrote a great book called Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, know it. The main character was Billy Pilgrim, who becomes stuck, unstuck in time, so he drifts back and forth all the time. And I said, just consider me if you know the character. I'm the Billy Pilgrim of this book. Mm. I'm going to go. I'm going to jump around in time. It's not going to be chronological like the first one. And and I was happy with the way it turned out because you know what? It worked. It's funny, and to release a book during the pandemic that makes people laugh out loud to me was mission accomplished. Yeah. Well, we could use a little bit more of that, certainly. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great, man. Up close and uncomfortable. Eddie Kramer actually said about the book, be prepared for extra underwear and a box of tissues if you're going to read it. Well, for those that don't know who Eddie Kramer is, if they're listening to your show, I'm sure they do. He's the famous uh, South African engineer that went to England and worked with Jimi Hendrix for his whole career. Still mm-hmm. works with the Hendrix Foundation. Yeah. He also did, you know, two Led Zeppelin albums, four Kiss albums. He worked with Traffic. He worked with the Beatles. He worked with the Stones. And he lives in Canada now. In fact, him and his wife took over the house I finished writing the book in, oh, wow. in, in Picton. They came down to visit me, and we went to, in Prince Edward County to the wineries and stuff and had a great week together while I was writing. And then when I finished and came back and COVID hit, they wanted to get out of Toronto, so we helped them out, and they moved to uh, Prince Edward County. Lucky oh, them. that's cool. Wow. we become great friends. I mean, uh, he remixed from scratch the very first Godowell. At some point, I'm going to put it out on vinyl in the next year or so. Nice. Uh, Eddie and sign it but it really sounds tremendous i mean i, I engineered the first well you know produced the first god and it, it it didn't sound anything like what we really sounded like but all of a sudden you know eddie comes in there and the kick drum sounds like john bonham and the bass actually sounds like it's got some oomph to it you know so you got my little 20 year old voice singing over led zeppelin <laughs> <laughs> cool i look forward to hearing that that's awesome so in addition to Up Close and Uncomfortable, which is out now, you've got a new book, a third book in the works. Yeah, well, you know, we can't play. <laughs> there is no music business at the moment and for the foreseeable future. So I thought instead of just spending all of my time drinking uh, <laughs> I would and doing interviews, I would start working on a new book because I realized that when up close and uncomfortable was finished. I had very little about the eight years I spent in Calgary mm-hmm. and then coming back to Toronto. So I've got like another 15 or 20 years worth of stories. So I, I, I thought to myself, I'm writing a bloody trilogy here. Ah. And some people will go, Oh, you egotistical goof. You know what I mean? You, you know, you're so high in yourself, but, but the stories aren't, Stories are about us. They're not about me. I mean, they're, they're about everybody. Everybody can relate to these stories. Mm-hmm. Having thought that it was a trilogy, the first thing I wrote down was the title of the book, which I'm pretty, it's working title, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to keep it. It's called The Idiot's Trilogy, Part Four. <laughs> so once again, oh, there you go. I mean, you're laughing at the title. And, and I, I've written about, I don't know, maybe 50 pages. I, I was reviewing it this morning and I was actually laughing out loud. Now, there is COVID stuff. I mean, I can't get away from the COVID thing. So I, I started out writing about what we're going through. And then it'll go back into me going from Toronto to Calgary, where, you know, I had extraordinary adventures out in the West, meeting all these legendary Western musicians and playing with them and getting to know them, and then recording a bunch of people out there. For some reason, I had an aptitude when I got to Calgary for recording female artists. Mm. So I did eight albums out there for chick singers, songwriters. And the best one of the bunch is a gal named Amy Bishop. She was a Calgary girl. 
she ended up on that show, The Launch. Yes. And she uh, she didn't win it, but you know they had Nikki Six as one of the judges, That's and the right. kids that won it were a like a heavy metal band. So, geez, I wonder who's going to win mm. this show. But I've never heard a better singer in my life than Amy Bishop. We did a Christmas album called Bells, and uh, she recorded Hallelujah. Everybody does. But I called up Oscar Lopez, who I met out there. Oscar's a world-famous flamenco guitar player. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oscar, I'm recording this uh, gal who I don't think you know, but what's it going to cost me to get you to come in and play classical guitar? $3,000, amigo. <laughs> I said, you'll, you'll do it for 300 Okay, I'll be there. So he comes, <laughs> he heard her sing, and they did a duet of her singing Hallelujah with him. You can hear his jewelry rattling on the classical guitar. And then he starts jamming with her. When he does this solo, it is phenomenal. It's actually what got her the audition for the launch. Best voice I've ever heard. Wow. So we did that was on the Christmas album, and, and and I said to her, I said I've always wanted to produce a Christmas album, but I don't like when you've got you know the first song is uh, a traditional you know Oh Holy Night or something, mm -hmm. and then the next one is Police Navidad, yeah. and you go the, the whole mood is ruined here. So I said let's really choose the songs carefully and make an album that two people could sit Christmas Eve with a glass of champagne in front of a fireplace with the candles going and not have Feliz Navidad come on. Mm. It, to, to me, it's the best Christmas album I've ever heard. It doesn't matter if I was involved with it. It's really good. And it's called Bells if people want to find it. And then we did, uh, she wanted me to do her next album, which I was very happy about that she wanted to work again, of her original uh, pop songs. Mm -hmm. We went into a studio out there and I started calling all of the top-notch musicians in the Calgary area. And they all came in, and, and we made a pop album. Every song sounds different. Much like my production on the Gatto albums, there's no two tracks that sound the same. I mean, yeah. my voice sounds a bit similar, but I like to sort of keep everything fresh, you mm -hmm. know, like my writing now. Yeah. So I had a lot of fun out there recording people, and then, of course, discovering the natural wonders of Alberta. Mm. You've got Badlands, where the dinosaurs are. You've got these canyons that look like they're out of a Steven Spielberg movie. And I would go exploring these bloody things. And it was something that I'd never done in my touring days. It was an eye-opener, you know. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, a growth curve, you know. Yeah. Life-enriching experience, for sure. Banff, those mountains. Oh, phenomenal. Everywhere you go, you go an hour in any direction from Calgary, you're going to find something that blows your mind, yeah. you know. Plus, the people are great. They, they had a great music scene. Uh, I met Gay Delorum out there, finally got to know him, and then he passed. And a couple of other of my great friends, Doc Bromley, incredible mandolin player. Mm -hmm. uh, he just passed away recently. And another guy named Bill Dowie, who has also left us. That was the worst part for me of the COVID thing, is that I wanted to go and say goodbye to my friends, and I couldn't do it, you know. I talked to them on the phone, but it's not the same thing as giving them a hug and a kiss and sending them off, you know. Not at all. But they'll all get their due in my new book because uh, there's going to be a, a lot about my years uh, out in Calgary and then returning to Toronto and getting involved, uh, you know, with the Alma Combo restoration, meeting Eddie Kramer. There's there's a lot left to tell. I never, ever thought I'd ever be a writer, but there you go, you know. That's fantastic. So now when can we expect that third book? As Michelangelo said to the Pope, when it's done. When it's done, it's done. No book will be released before it's time. I said to my wife the other day, I said, if I can do five pages a day, I'll have this book ready for this Christmas. I'd like to have it out for this year, too. I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, I never know what's going to happen with me any day. I mean, I'm going to be 70 in March, and uh, I still 
have got the same mindset I had when I was 13, you know? Oh, good for you, man. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I like that. You know, that title of the third book, I was going to suggest a play on uh, the third verse is the same as the first. Actually, that's good too. That's really good. <laughs> I've always loved that. It's sweet. Like, I, I heard that for the first time and like I would listen to it over and over again and laugh. I just thought that was so great. No, that is actually a good alternate title. I dummied up another title page that said, the number one New York Times bestseller of all times, yeah. <laughs> but, but all the but all the S's were dollar signs. I thought maybe I can get away with it like that, and then you turn the page and it goes or the Idiots Trilogy Part Four. <laughs> so I, I'm going to check with my lawyer to see if I can get away with doing the the number one you know New York Times bestseller of all times. That's great. And I think because of the dollar signs, I might be able to squeak it by, but uh, you know. I write this stuff and I read it and I'm laughing out loud. And I go, if I'm laughing at my own stupid jokes, someone else is going to get them. There you go. Yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens. Perfect. Well, I look forward to that coming out. All right. Shall we get into your tunes, sir? Yeah, if you wish. Yeah. You've you've got five great ones here. So we're going to kick it off with the Beatles, Here, There, and Everywhere from Revolver. For Paul McCartney, it's one of the best songs he ever wrote. Mm -hmm. The structure of the song, uh, I did a, a songwriting course in uh, Calgary, and the structure of the of the course it, it just starts rising, you yes. know. Yeah. It just keeps going up and going up and going up, and then it starts going down and going. I mean, it's the perfect structure for a pop song. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, the playing on it is fantastic, and as usual, his vocal is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a great sentiment. I mean, it's it's a romantic song. I mean, every time I hear it, I go. Man, I wish I'd written that one, man, because that's an incredible love song. I mean, it really is. He wrote it about Jane Asher back in the day when he was going out with her. Yeah. And it's it's probably my favorite Paul McCartney song for sure. I was asked a couple of years ago that dreaded question, what's your favorite Beatles song? And uh, that one came up right away just because that ascending melody is just so perfect and so, yeah. you know, it's, it, it, it is. Considering the entire scope, Greg, of the Beatles catalog. This is this is definitely up there at the top. Oh yeah, I, I mean they wrote so hundreds of the best yeah. songs of all time. They, they go down in history the way that the great writers uh, Gershwin and Burt Bacharach and Mozart and all those guys—they're they're, going to be part of that forever, long after that we're gone. I mean they're still going to be around. Agree. And uh, it is a, you, you you hit it on the on the head. It's a perfect song, a perfect pop song. It really is. Yeah. Uh, the Kinks, Waterloo Sunset next. This is a good pick too. When I had my radio show, Rock Talk, I could pick out who I wanted to uh, interview that week. And I happened to know that Ray Davis was in town doing a one-man show down on the the Danforth Music Hall. So I've been to see it, called his record company, said, can I get an interview with Ray? So he was staying at the Harbor Castle. I went down with the uh, technician who was going to tape it from CFRB. And uh, Ray wouldn't let us into his room. (laughs) So... He had his people bring a couch out into the hallway of no. the hotel. <laughs> I, I happened, I expected as much from him, you know. And, and I really prided myself on, on questions, you know, like on really digging deep because yeah. I've been asked questions before. I know what a lousy question is. Yeah. If you get a lousy question, you're probably going to give a lousy answer. But he, so he sat down. I had to stand up while I was interviewing him. And, uh, and he was pretty aloof. And I was asking him these great questions, and he was giving me one-word monosyllabic answers. Uh-huh. Yes, no, don't know, maybe. 
And I thought, he really doesn't want to be here until I said to him, mm. you know, Ray, I've always regarded you as the Charles Dickens of rock and roll. Uh -huh. And that's when that famous, the little smile, really? <laughs> and I had him. I had him right there. How do you say that? I said, well, look at Waterloo Sunset, you know, for instance, how you describe the scene, you know, of Waterloo Sunset in London. I mean, or, or, or the one that Dead Ed Street, you know, crack up in the ceiling and, and kitchen sink is leaking. Yeah. Now he's in. Now he wants to talk. I mean, you tell someone they're, they're the Charles Dickens of anything, they're going to pay attention. <laughs> That's a good know? point. And I had him. That's so true. next we talk about the humor in his songs. He goes, so he's, he, he's smart. He wants to see if I know my stuff. He goes, where do you see humor? I said, there's humor through most of your songs. I said, uh, Ducks on the Wall from Soap Opera really springs to mind. Mm. And he starts singing, my baby's got the most deplorable taste, but her biggest mistake is hanging over the fireplace. And I start singing Dave Davis's part. Yeah. She's got ducks, ducks on a wall. And I'm singing harmony with Ray Davis. Oh, wow. Which for me was just like one of those moments, oh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And after that, we were like bosom buddies, you know. And we talked for like, a, I think, an hour longer than we were supposed to. Yeah. But, you know, Waterloo Sunset was just when Terry meets Julie every evening, you know, Waterloo Station, you know, I mean, it just conjures up such a romantic, you can see them. Mm -hmm. When you can write a song that you can see, yes. <laughs> you know, you close your eyes and you can see where they are. You've really, you, you're a powerful songwriter. It was originally called Liverpool Sunset, I believe. Yes, I know. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, everybody tried to cash in on the on the on the Beatles, right? Well, yeah, that was it. I like Ray said. I guess somebody asked him about it, and he said, um, "Liverpool's always been my favorite city." I was a big Mersey guy, big Mersey B guy, and uh, I just eventually changed it because it just didn't work to Waterloo Sunset. Oh, and then of course he could get uh, Terrence Stamp and Julie Christie into the equation as well. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it made perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great song in my top five for sure. Yeah. On the Liverpool vibe still, the Beatles from Rubber Soul, In My Life, is next. Well, if if Paul's ultimate song, in my estimation, is here, there, and everywhere, then In My Life is John's, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I figured out how to play it years ago, and it's a staple. Actually, both of these songs, when I do my up-close and uncomfortable one-man storyteller show, I always make sure I slide both of these songs in. Once again, an incredible chord progression mm -hmm. in the song and and the use of jazz chords and going from majors to minors i mean mm -hmm. really really clever stuff now you have to wonder how much of an input george martin had on arrangements and stuff the beatles were well, all three of them, the guitar guys were they had incredible chord knowledge because of the songs they covered back in hamburg yeah of course you've got george coming in with the sped up harpsichord solo in the middle mm-hmm you have to, I mean, he was pretty hands-on with their music, especially in the early days before they realized that they really didn't, you know, they didn't need any help. Mm -hmm. uh, John would write Strawberry Fields. Paul would write Penny, Penny Lane. Lane. Yeah. My Life was a real song about the people that he'd left, the people that he'd lost, the people that he loved. It showed a very, very tender side to a guy that I think on the same album, if I'm not mistaken, I think Run For Your Life is on that album as well. You know, you're talking, you know, uh, I'd rather see a dead little girl than to be with another man. But still, I mean, they had that working class Liverpool men's attitude mm -hmm. to, to women. And then you get here, there and everywhere from Paul. 
which is about as lovely as you can get. And the same thing within my life. Yeah. Incredible. Next, you've got the Beach Boys. God only knows. Great vocal harmonies in this. Yeah, it, well, it, great vocal harmonies in everything they ever did. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, even though Brian wrote it, he was smart enough back in those days to dole the song out to the boy that could do the best job, and Carl Wilson sang lead on it. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the songs when McCartney first heard Pet Sounds. That's the one that freaked him out, and he yeah. went back to John and said, we've got our work cut out for us here. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's just another one of those songs where melodically it's just so far above the norm chord progression i mean it, it's just it's, it's not like the standard songs of the day there's no moon spoon in june in any of this stuff it's, it's all well thought out lyrics and wonderful arrangements and then of course brian's production techniques the way he used to add he, he used christmas bells a lot in his records mm-hmm. which i always thought was a fantastic idea because nobody did unless unless they were making jingle bells nobody used christmas bells but he loved to uh to add that kind of stuff to songs yeah well he he added all kinds of things that you just think like who the hell's idea was that like that in good vibrations what is that thing called it's a theremin yeah 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 i saw i saw them do it live oh did you really wow yeah, wow. at a, at a, it was a live show called Beggar's Banquet. It was out in like Downsview Park or something. Many, I was in Flood back then. Wow. And I remember Bread played on it, that great pop band Bread. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Beach Boys played. And that's, it was, it would have been the year that Good Vibrations was the big hit. And Mike Love played that theremin part, which is a tricky thing to do, but he had it nailed. Yeah. And, and the other thing that Brian Wilson did a lot too was he used bass harmonicas. Like, the things are about two feet wide. And then like a, like a foghorn. Yeah. And he would layer them, you know. And I mean, he was a really innovative guy. Or or let's open up the lid of the grand piano and get a guitar pick and take the guitar pick across it and mic right. it, you know. I yeah. mean, and it taught guys like me a lot of stuff about how records were made. I mean, I had a lovely chat with Eddie Kramer last week about. A, I'm going to go back in and work with a band called Three Quarters Stone. Mm-hmm. I, I produced their first album a number of years ago. And this is when Pro Tools first came in. I had no inkling of what it was. And I, I remember standing out in the, in the tracking room with Danny, the singer, and we were doing harmonies. Mm-hmm. And it took us about an hour to get the harmony right on the first chorus. We finally did it. We did it a couple of times. It sounded great. And I said, okay, run us ahead to the next chorus. And we open up our mouths, and this guy, all of a sudden, there's the vocals. Uh-huh. And I said, whoa, whoa. I said, what's that? He goes, I cut and pasted it and flew it in. I said, what is that? He goes, well, I, I just I took that section you just did and put it in this section so you don't have to do it again. I said, well, hang on a darn second. I said, we don't make records like that. <laughs> well, now that we've got it, we're going to start doing it again now, and this course will be stronger than the first one, and the next one will be stronger than the first two, and exponentially this song will grow <laughs> in stature as we until we finish it. Mm-hmm. I said, that's the way I make records. And, and Eddie, he says, oh, old school. And that's right. I mean, you know, I'd say we're going to do a you know, backwards guitar solo on this. Well, now you could hit a button and your guitar solo is backwards. I know. It's just, there's, there's no craftsmanship involved in that, you know? I mean, first of all, we're recording in the guy's basement studio, which was quite a studio. Mm. I actually took Eddie out there about a month ago. He says, this guy's got this in his house. But, you know, I said, let's not dog it. I mean, we got a quarter-inch tape. Let's record, flip it over the way the Beatles did it when they first did it. Flip it over, try to lock it in, or do it again, 
We're doing it again. We're doing it again. We're not on a clock here. We're not paying for studio time. And basically taught them, listen to how natural your record sounds now instead of it being cut and pasted everywhere, you know, or pushing a button. Right. I hate that stuff, you know. the, The warmth is lost in those things. It is. And it's also the trial and error aspect of it. That's like when you finally nail it, when you, when the engineer lines up the tapes and all of a sudden that backwards solo comes in perfectly, you go, listen to that. We did it. And and not to mention, Greg, the the happy accidents that. uh, That's what we call them. Happy accidents. Yeah. Yeah. All kinds of That's what we call them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that aspect of recording. Yeah. So the Rolling Stones is your last tune here. Time is on my side. And I think this is on 12 by 5, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Great uh, another song that I've been playing. Uh, I mean, I've always had a British invasion band in the background. My last one was out in uh, Calgary. It was called the Dick Clark Five. Hmm. There was four four guys in the band. So instead <laughs> of the, da- the Dave Clark Five, it was the Dick Clark Five, which is funny. Actually, a friend of mine came up with the name, and I said, that's great. But we get to a gig, yeah. and the after the first set, the club owner would come over as they do. And he goes, so where's the other guy? I go, what do you mean the other guy? He says, I hired the Dick Clark five. I said, that's exactly what you got. Well, how come there's only four guys on stage? I said, because the name is a joke. Dick Clark, you know, Dick Clark, American Bassett. Yeah. Dave Clark five, Dick Clark five, four guys. It's funny. Ha ha. He says, well, the joke's on you because I'm only paying you for four guys. Ah. I said, well, you're only going to do that once because everybody's really digging us and we ain't coming back unless yeah. you pay us. And we always got paid. <laughs> you know what I mean? But those songs, especially the early Stone songs, I know nearly all of them. Yeah. We used to do Off the Hook. We did all the weird ones that people wouldn't think of doing, you know? Oh, see, that's cool. If You Need Me, That's How Strong My Love Is. Wow. But t- Time Is On My Side was always one that I went, I mean, th- th- that was probably as close to a, a Stone's hit that we ever did because we, we were going for the deep album tracks. I love you know? that. Same thing with the kinks and stuff. We, we would do all day and all of the night and you really got me, but we could also throw in something like Lover Not a Fighter or something, you know? Yes, I, I, I'm a huge Deep Cuts guy, Greg. I love oh. that. Like, love it. I've had conversations, you know, endless about this, about the power of Deep Cuts and going through. Stones are a great band for that too because, you know, you go into albums like Beggar's Banquet. Oh yeah, my favorite. Like and and past all the hits, right? And and like stuff like live with me, you know. Yeah. Stray Cat Blues. Yeah. I wanted I've always wanted to do that one. First of all, it's naughty, but what a great riff in that thing, you know. Yeah. That's where the real gold is. No, time is on my side. I I'm pretty sure I'm I'm almost hundred percent sure that they didn't write it. That was a cover for them back in the day. It was. And it's a funny story. It was written the year before, but there were two versions of this song. The Stones covered it. I think yeah. 64 and it only had like an organ intro. And then they did another version where they changed the arrangement a little bit and added guitar. And that's the yeah, one that, that, that you hear. Yeah. Anyway. There's that lead guitar solo off the top over the organ and stuff. Exactly. And, and, yeah. I know that. Yeah. I probably got both of them, but it was great. I mean, th- that happened a number of times. Like there was a girl that put out go now mm-hmm. just before the Moody's version came out because the Moody blues were from England. Hers just got, dumped to the wayside and of course Denny Lane got the hit with Go Now mm-hmm. so that happened a lot you know they were black artists that were making these songs in the first place and then you got these white long haired kids from England coming out yeah. and, while the mania was going on and they got the hits out of them the Rolling Stones greatest trick was that they sold American black American music back to Americans really yeah 
And, and you know what I really love the most about that era of music, especially with the Stones, is Jagger must have been playing that tambourine when he was doing the vocal because mm-hmm. it's right in the lead vocal pocket. Yeah. Same as the maracas when he was playing them. People had forgotten the art of recording percussion instruments. It's a big part of my production because I remember when you heard that, you know, on the four, and it was like bathed in the same echo that they were using on his voice. The tambourine was a lead instrument in the bloody song. Yeah, absolutely. Stone's recordings are full of that stuff. You know, just totally. again, going back to happy accidents, you hear a, a chair squeaking on the floor and or, or Jagger's voice cracks on Exile. You know, I, I love that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Eddie told me some great stories because he, he worked with the Stones when Brian Jones was alive. Mm. And uh, he had nothing, even though, you know, Brian had, was a very flawed individual as a human being, you know, and the drugs and all the rest of it that finally took him. But mm-hmm. uh, Eddie said that he was the guy in the band. He says, you'd walk in the studio, there'd be something lying around. He would pick it up and within two minutes he could play it. Wow. So he would do that with marimbas. He would play saxophone. He would play recorder. He played dulcimer. He would play sitar. Yeah. I mean, he was one of those guys, you know. Wow. Well, he brought the sitar in for... Um, Paint it uh, black. Paint it black, right. Hmm. Great footage. And of course, Harrison had already done it because of, uh, you know, the, the, those Indian musicians hanging around on the set of Help. Mm-hmm. That's what got George. I actually have in my basement, I have a sitar from the same place in New Delhi called Ricky Rand, where George's sitars came from and Ravi Shankar's. Oh, wow. So it's like a Stradivarius. I mean, it's like, yeah, I can't yeah. play it, but I have it sitting in the corner on top of an old Vox Essex bass amp, and it sure looks cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Well, Greg, thank you very much for this chat. I really appreciate this, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Brent. It's been a pleasure to be here talking to you about all this great stuff, and uh, let's do part two some other time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, guests come on multiple times often, because you can't just bring five, you know? I'm sure you've got a million more songs that we could talk about, so. (laughs) A million. A million. (laughs) So everybody out there, wash your hands a lot. I washed my hands so much during the first wave of uh, COVID, I could see through the skin. Oh, God. I am not kidding you. I just called in my gal and they went, I can see what's under my skin. Wow. You know, so we sort of knocked that off because I was going through that. I kind of wash my hands every five seconds here, mm. you know, but uh, it, it does uh, does detract from your skin tone. Yeah. <laughs> so wear your mask, you know, stay, stay distance, eat your vegetables, and uh, we'll see you at the next Gato gig next year. All right. Greg Godovitz, thank you very much. The new book is called Up Close and Uncomfortable. Thank you so much, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Take good care. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Greg Godovitz. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.